You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. Good morning, everybody. Merry Christmas. Hope you all had a good Christmas day. Since it is the day after Christmas, we're going to look at a part of the Christmas story that actually happens after uh, the actual birth of Jesus. So we're looking at something that is part of the Christmas story that happens after the birth of Jesus. And um, we're going to be looking at the account of the Magi, the the wise men, which uh, by some accounts may have taken up to two years uh, after the actual birth itself. I'll explain that when we get there. Um, Our text this morning is Matthew 2, 1 through 18. And given the uh, length of the text, I'll have you stay seated. So take your Bibles or your bulletins uh, where the text is printed. And uh, Will and I will read God's word to you. Matthew 2, 1 through 18. And now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I, may, I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is God's word. Father, let's pray. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Lord, the Christmas story is beautiful, of course, but it is also brutal as we, as we read here. So help me to communicate it honestly and clearly and help all of us, including the preacher, to understand it and to uh, act upon it in ways that might please you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the wise men are, at least from a human standpoint, probably the biggest standouts in the uh, in the Christmas story. I mean, all the other uh, human participants were 
normal people, right? Nothing uh, grand or glamorous or exotic about them. In fact, that was part of the point. But the Magi would have certainly stood out in Bethlehem, right? These, these exotic foreigners, uh, most likely astrologers from uh, what is modern-day Iraq, not kings, like the Christmas carol says, uh, but counselors to kings, uh, almost certainly. Um, the Magi have excited the imagination of, of, of people throughout the centuries, especially, I suppose, children. I, at least that was true for me. I remember uh, as a kid being caught up in the magic of Christmas, and, and part of that magic was... Um, uh, looking at the into my uh, crash that my family had there and gazing at these w- wise men right on these mysterious figures uh, in their colorful robes um, they had kind of the the scent of spices about them right uh, at, um, and i 've told you before one of my favorite photographs and linda 's too is a is a picture we took at, at a Christmas celebration years ago. Our kids were, two kids were little, and uh, they're with all their cousins, and they decided uh, to put on a nativity play. And the kids surprised the adults. They all came out and, were, and uh, were all dressed up and did this nativity play. And we took a picture of them all. And the, the, what I like best are the magi, and they're right in the front. They're three, three nieces. Uh, and uh, all wrapped up in colorful clothes, way too big for them, uh, lots of costume jewelry. Uh, two of them had saucepans on their heads uh, for crowns, and the third had a colander on her, got a cockeyed colander on her head. It's just, it's a great, great photo, and, and reflective of how, I, you know, some of that, that attraction of the Magi to us. Uh, but this isn't a kid's story, right? It's, um, it's history, of course, and it is, it's a hard story, right? I mean, there, there, is, there are things going on here that people are often surprised to read about. They hadn't heard that this was part of the Christmas story, this kind of brutality and evil, the kind of thing that never shows up on a Christmas card, right? Um, so I'd like to unpack it this morning. Uh, th- there's much more here than we can we could cover in one sermon, but we'll, we'll, I want to just focus on four participants in this event and, and see what we can learn from them. They're, of course, the wise men first, and then Herod, and then the, <clears throat> the chief priests and the scribes, and then finally Jesus himself, okay? So that, that's, uh, that's our outline. So first, the wise men. Um, the wise men represent the grace-driven response to Jesus. I, you know, I suspect most of you have seen the bumper sticker around somewhere. It says, wise men still seek him. Right? Um, that's a clever line, and it's true. Uh, but it's not actually the punchline of this event. It's, it's not the truth that we're supposed to learn from what happened here. Matt, Matthew didn't include this account of the Magi to make that point. Um, the, these, these Magi coming to and bowing down before Jesus uh, in Bethlehem really should be understood fundamentally as a acknowledgement and celebration of the seeking, sovereign, initiating grace of God. Um, The fact that the Magi actually sought out God's Messiah is only because God first sought out the Magi. And how did he do it? You know, it's, it's interesting that God communicates to people in ways that they will get, in ways that they'll understand. And uh, the Magi were astrologers, right? They focused on Excuse me. <clears throat> they focused on the stars. And so God uses some kind of mysterious celestial body to communicate to the, to the Magi, uh, to draw them out. 
he also used the scriptures. Uh, they, they clearly had knowledge of the scriptures. They were able to connect the, the star to the scriptures and to the prophecies in the scriptures. There is lots of academic speculation that perhaps these wise men learned of the scriptures through someone like Daniel, right? Prophet, earlier prophet who'd been exiled to Babylon in Iraq, uh, risen to prominence in the court there. Uh, seems likely that uh, they could have learned about the Hebrew scriptures through someone like Daniel. But there it is, right? We, we say it in the New Testament. We, we love because God first loved us. And, and the wise men sought Jesus because he first sought out the wise men. Um, and if whenever we seek God, it's because he sought us out first. And he he's communicates to us in ways that we understand. Maybe it's it's from hearing a preacher. Maybe it's from listening to a podcast. Maybe it's just the words of a friend. Or um, it could be the experience of pain and loss. God uses those sorts of painful realities oftentimes, as C.S. Lewis said, as, it's as a megaphone to, to reach the world. Um, um, so the wise men showed up in Bethlehem not because they were so wise, but because God brought them there, whether they, they had knowledge of that or not. And, and, and I just want you to know, if you're a Christian here today, that that's, that that's true of you, right? That God sought you before you ever sought him. And even though we're often not aware of, of, of that prior seeking, but it, 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 it's true. So the fact that you're here and the fact that you are uh, worshiping Jesus and you know him as your Lord and Savior is evidence of the fact that God has sought you out. And that, that ought to really, I hope, increase your faith and strengthen your confidence uh, in God. Um, what the presence of the Magi in Bethlehem also signals is, is that Jesus is for everybody, right? This is the first time really in the Christmas story that we're beginning to see, we begin to see the international implications of Christmas. Up till this point, it's been, it's been pretty much within Israel, pretty much among the Jews, but now, uh, uh, in, in a very real way, right? The nations start coming to Jesus. Um, remember the promise that God made to Abraham two millennia before Jesus uh, was born, that uh, he would bless Abraham and through Abraham and his descendants, he, th- he would be a blessing to the nations. And that's what we, we begin to see here. You know, it's, you read a lot in the popular press about Christianity and uh, there's a lot of uninformed writing about, about the faith and a lot, especially in, our, in some of the political writings, you, you almost get the idea that people think Christianity is sort of an American thing, right? It's an, it's an American religion. Well, it's not. It's not even a religion in the, in the sense that we traditionally understand religion as as humanity's search for God because Christianity flips it on its head, right? Christianity says, no, it's all about God's search for humanity. And who and whom God seeks, God finds every time. Um, it's God reaching out to the world, and that's really what we see with the wise men. And it's a it's a that's the reality behind the missionary impulse of our faith. Yes, we have the Great Commission where Jesus you know, commanded us to go out and make disciples of all nations. But, but the real impulse behind that command is that, is that God is going out in front of us. Right? This isn't, missions isn't some human-driven program. Uh, it's not some human goal. It's not an imperialistic grab for territory or power. It's simply reflecting what God is doing. God is seeking and finding his people. And, and by his grace, he enlists us in that, in that program, which is why we pray here um, uh, about 
you know, sending people onto the mission field, whether it's when you retire or whether uh, you're just thinking about starting a career. Um, I'm praying, we're, we're praying, leadership is praying here that, that, that more and more we will see missions as, uh, as a viable calling and, um, uh, and a vital, significant uh, career. And in that process, you know, God is reaching out to people um, that you don't expect. Um, and that, the fact that God is doing that, that, uh, you know, he's not just going after good people or moral people or religious people, but he's going after people, out, you know, outside that box that that might seem odd to us shows us how how comprehensively sin has sort of warped our understanding of the world, our value system, right? We're, we're, we are we think that God's values are upside down. No, His values aren't upside down. Ours are. Um, Jesus Christ came for people that religion and religious people tended to despise and reject and shun and overlook. That's in part what God Jesus killed. He so outraged the religious authorities by who he hung with, right? And the Magi were part of that unexpected group. Uh, These... The, the, these were for the Jews unclean people, right? As as uh, you know, exotic as they may have looked, uh, they were considered unclean. Uh, the Old Testament scriptures condemns uh, astrology. These these they would have been thought of as practitioners of the dark arts, right? Worshippers of created things like stars rather than the Creator. They would have been thought of, you know, as, as people to be avoided, uh, people who were irredeemably lost. Uh, but of course, we, we are all irredeemably lost apart from God seeking and finding us, uh, just like he sought the Magi out. So I guess the closing message here for, as we consider the, the, the wise men, is if just just know that there is no one outside of the reach of God's initiating sovereign grace and forgiveness um, in, offered in Jesus Christ. No one. Um, doesn't matter what your past is. Doesn't matter what your present is. Doesn't matter who you are or where you are. Um, Jesus came for people whom religion tends to reject. He came for people that the world rejected. So he can reach you, wherever and whoever you are. And that just, you know, hold that truth. All right, Herod. Herod's the next guy. Represents the sin, if if the wise men represent the grace-driven response to Jesus, then Herod represents the sin-driven response, right? And I don't know if you do with Herod what I do. I tend to do with Herod what I do with the Pharisees, which is sort of, I, I make, I, I, can, I put a black hat on all of them. And, and sort of in my own thinking, they become sort of cartoonish in their evil. Uh, you know, and we ought not to do that. I mean, Herod was, Herod was a gifted man and a gifted leader uh, he was, I, I did the little reading on him. He was skilled in the martial arts. Who knew that? Uh, skilled in rhetoric, uh, politics. Um, he was, we just have just found out, a master horticulturalist. Christianity Today, every year, about this time, publishes its top ten findings of biblical archaeology for the year. They just came out with the 2021 list, and um, in that list was this a finding in as they've been um, exploring Herod's palace in Jericho that they have discovered 
this uh, essentially a garden. It was of miniature trees that Herod grew in clay pots. And these were exotic trees from, from all over, not, uh, not native to the region. Um, very rare, very surprising, and demonstrated that, that Herod was, um, uh, had a, uh, a massive green thumb, apparently. Um, so, you know, who knew? Tremendous administrator. Uh, he pulled off huge famine relief programs, uh, and he was a master builder, right? There are huge building projects all over the Holy Land attributable to Herod. Um, he was also a pragmatist when it came to religion, and which is like so many people in our culture today, right? It's like, well, if it works for you, that's great. You know, whatever's true for you, uh, you know, if it works for you, great. He wasn't too bothered by... Um, by that, he would not have been bothered by the Magi, uh, you know, these foreigners worshiping some strange god. He was not uh, opposed to their religious pursuit, um, it, you know, so long as it involved some strange god that didn't impact him. Problem was, he, he discovered that this 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 baby in Bethlehem impacted him personally, right? And he and he found that out when um, uh, when the the wise men asked him, uh, "Where is he who has been born king of the Jews?" Well, that was a troubling statement for Herod because that was his title. He was the king of the Jews. What do you mean? Who who is he that was born king of the Jews? I'm the king of the Jews. What are you talking about? Uh, and all of a sudden, uh, Herod, uh, who, who is probably not unlike any of us, I mean, I don't like my position questioned. I don't like my power questioned. I don't like to have someone just willy-nilly come in and take take my position and my power away. Uh, right? Naturally, we, we sort of rise up in our pride against that, and that's what, uh, and that's what Herod did. Um, uh, so what did he do? Well, he did something very Herod-like, right? Um, First, he tried to you know, enlist the Magi in his effort to find this kid, um, not so he could worship him. You read through that, I hope, right? Yeah, c- come back and tell me where he is so I can worship him, right? No, he wanted to kill him, so, uh, but when the Magi tricked him, didn't go back, he did the next best thing, which is, okay, fine, let's just, we'll just... Look at Bethlehem, surrounding region, and kill every boy in there two years old or younger. Um, an incredibly brutal, cold-blooded thing to do, entirely consistent with Herod's character. Um, I think it was Caesar Augustus. Some, someone said that it was safer to be a pig in, Caesar's, in, in, in Herod's house than, than one of his sons. Uh, he was not above killing family members uh, if if they threatened his position. He killed a couple of sons and he killed a wife. Um, so it would not he would not have thought twice about ordering the execution of you know uh, babies of uh, Jewish peasants in the Bethlehem area uh, to protect his position. Um, as the late uh, Eugene Peterson said, uh, the Magi and King Herod agreed on one thing. They took, they both took Christ's claims seriously. Uh, but a very different response, right? They took the claims seriously, but, but the Magi worshipped and Herod resisted. Herod opposed. Which is strikingly what you see all through the gospel accounts right this is these are the reactions really the only reactions incited by jesus you see that you don't you see very you don't really see any sort of middling reactions to jesus you, that people either worshiped him or they opposed him and uh that's really the christmas choice that we all face um and it's a question that's, that this account should make you ask yourself, right? Am I worshiping Jesus or am, or am I uh, uh, opposing Jesus? 
Another theologian, Dale Bruner, uh, put it this way, uh, talking about Herod. He said, hating revelation leads to hurting people. If people will be ungodly, they will ultimately be inhumane. I'll repeat that. I think it's a really good insight. Again, thinking about Herod, right? Wasn't, he was hating the revelation of this new, king, new Messiah. Right? H- hating revelation leads to hurting people. She certainly did. If people will be ungodly, which Herod was, of course, they will ultimately be inhumane. Our sin isn't a personal thing. Right? We don't sin in a vacuum. Our sin... It's a corporate thing. It's a social thing. It hurts other people. It inevitably hurts other people. I mean, think of the shame of abortion in our own country. Um, think of think of uh, what Robin prayed about today. Sort of the just in the last couple of years, the rise of uh, incivility uh, among us. I can't tell you how many. Families, I, 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 people have told me about that have been, you know, weren't coming together at Christmas because of of division and opposition and unkindness and hatred um, spawned by these times. It's um, if people will be ungodly, they will be inhumane. And in all this, I think, to close this out about Herod, I think Herod stands as proof of the principle uh, uh, that sin makes you stupid. Um, that's a, I, I borrowed that statement, as you, some of you may recall, from a student in one of my preaching classes who used that in one of his sermons. And he was roundly criticized by his fellow students for saying something so... so uh, Stark like that sin makes you stupid. I gave him an A. (laughs) Told him he was brilliant. And asked him if I could borrow it. Sin makes you stupid. It's true. Uh, You think about Herod. I mean, right? He, if, if, if the prophecy, if the Magi were wrong about the prophecy, then what, why, why bother with some toddler in Bethlehem? Right, Herod was established in his power. He was near the end of his life. It, it, it wasn't long before he, he would die. Um, uh, why bother with some poor kid in Bethlehem? If the Magi were, were right, then Herod knew enough to know that, that to oppose God would be impossible. Right? If, if, if this really is God's Messiah, then Herod knew that... It, it, he couldn't stop God. He wouldn't be able to stop the Messiah any more than you and I could. But so you see, so Herod's, Herod's being irrational. And, and that's what sin does, right? Because what sin does is dis, you, you just, it just distances you from God. And, and the further you get away from God, the more irrational your thinking becomes. Because quite frankly, you're moving away from the source of reason and wisdom. God himself and and we start and we're made to be in a relationship with him and as that relationship gets attenuated and strained and cut off because of sin then we we start acting like a computer that's got a virus right we we start acting irrationally I'm sure that accounts for you know a lot of I've I've brilliant friends a lot smarter than I am who aren't Christians and when I talk to them about the faith sometimes their their normally rational minds kind of go out the window right and th- and they use arguments against the faith and oppose the faith in ways that um, are irrational uh, but they don't see it or if they see it they don't care um, and uh, I, you know again I think that's that's the proof of the principle that sin makes you stupid we got to watch out for that all right, um, so we've seen the wise men, we've seen Herod, then the chief priests and the scribes, and they also as represent a sin-driven response to Jesus. 
But their response, of course, looks a lot different than Herod's. And in some ways, it's more troubling because it's coming from people who know, should know better. It's coming from the people who, you know, the religious Jews, the re- religious leaders of the Jewish community. Um, Herod engaged in active opposition. The chief priests and the scribes engaged in what you might say is just apathetic indifference, right? Um, they had to be called uh, by Herod, uh, and and they respond to Herod's call. Herod says, "You know, where's the? Tell me about this Messiah. Where's where's he supposed to be born?" And they know right where to go, right? They go right to the prophecy that uh, the, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. So so the the Magi are confirmed. They at least are in the you know they're in the in the zip code after traveling hundreds of miles. Uh, over a, a long period of time from the east uh, to Bethlehem uh, or to Jerusalem at this moment. and um, uh, But as far as we know, none of these chief priests and scribes who advised Herod that, yes, this is where it's happening, and presumably having the knowledge that there were magi here who, who think that it's happened, that this, ma- this Messiah has been born. Not one of those chief priests and scribes, as far as we know, could be bothered to travel the few miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to check the story out. You, know, you know, why is that? And I think the answer is, in some ways, it's, it's the fact that religion tends to inoculate us against God. And this is where we have to watch out for ourselves, Christians, right? That, that, that our faith doesn't become, be, be, you know, our faith should be our vital connection to God. It shouldn't be what, what holds God at bay, that holds him at arm's length. But that's in fact what, what had happened with these religious leaders, right? They knew a lot about him. They knew the scriptures. They knew their theology and they knew their prophecies, but it gets too messy. It gets too personal. It gets too close when they say, oh yeah, by the way, everything that prophecy talks about is just happening right here down the road. Woo. Right? It, uh, it reminds me of that great quote from C.S. Lewis. I forget what book it's from. Uh, I've, I have it written down because I quote it so often. You guys know it. Um, when, he, when he's, he's thinking about kids playing burglars, you know, in the house. And he goes, there comes a moment when the children who've been playing at burglars hush suddenly. Was that a real footstep in the hall? And, well, we've all been there. And then, then he jumps and he goes, there comes a moment when people who've been dabbling in religion, and humanity's search for God, when they suddenly draw back, Suppose we really found him. We never meant it to come to that. We're still supposing he finds us. <laughs> it's true, right? It, it's, religion has a way of, of, of sort of making God comfortable, of making the faith manageable, of, of being more in control. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, it's, it's easy to, to sit there and pontificate from your office in Jerusalem. It's another to walk down the road and ba- get down and, you know, on the floor and bow down before uh, a toddler and say, here's the Messiah. But that's, that's what we need to be prepared to do. And uh, so there's a warning here in the chief priests and scribes, I think for us, to make sure that we're not... Um, uh, we're not using religion to avoid Jesus. That Flannery O'Connor quote. The best way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sinning. And we think we avoid sinning if we get all religious and then we don't have to deal with Jesus. Um, don't want to, we, don't want to be, we don't want to be that kind of person, that kind of Christian. Okay? But, of course, it's not just religious people who are apathetically indifferent. The m- m- most, most of the world seems to be. Um, I certainly have a lot of friends who are apathetically indifferent. 
to Jesus. And, and, it, and in fact, what they don't see and what I try to con- show them is that apathetic, you know, you can have lots of reactions to Jesus, I suppose theoretically, but apathetic indifference isn't really a, an appropriate one. It means that you haven't really dealt with Jesus or understood Jesus. Right? So, you know, look at his, look who he claims to be. Look at what the eyewitnesses say he did and what happened to him. Especially that he really died on the cross, that he really rose three days later. That 40 days later he ascended into heaven. Right? Look at that. And... And then say, you know, then, then don't tell me that, you, you know, you're sort of, well, you know, take him or leave him. If, if, it, if that's right, if, if Jesus' claims are true and if what the eyewitnesses say is accurate, then, then th- th- there is no choice. You have to worship him, Right? If it's not true, then that means that Jesus lied or he's deceived or he's mad or whatever. He's, then he's to be totally rejected, right? Why, why would you respect him as a great moral teacher if he says, yeah, I'm God and I walk on water? You, right? You wouldn't. So, so it's, again, it's that it's, I quoted, I paraphrased the quote in the Christmas Eve service. Let me give you the real quote uh, from Lewis. He said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. So all of this is just, all this Christmas is just, you know, cultural baggage. It's of no, religiously of no importance. If it's not, if the facts underlying it are not true, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. That's what made Jesus so maddening. He never left you sort of the, 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 the luxury of the third choice, you know, kind of the middling choice. It was either worship or oppose. If you're not for me, you're against me. Um, and that's one of the reasons they put him to death. Well, speaking of Jesus, then let's look at Jesus. Um, you don't read a lot about him in this story. Um, he, except that he's, he's bowed down to by these, uh, by these magi. He's, he's received these gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Um, been a lot made of those gifts uh, in the nature of them. I'm not sure how much of that is um, is viable. It's it's what is viable is that those were gifts uh, that were often given to royalty. I mean, they they chose gifts that were completely appropriate for an ambassador, say, to give to a king. Uh, gold. Frankincense, myrrh, all super valuable, uh, rare uh, commodities. Um, it's possible, you know, people have speculated that it was maybe Joseph sold off some of the, that to finance the, uh, the sojourning in Egypt. Um, we don't know, but it's possible. So... Um, but Jesus is at the point here, right? He's the beginning and the end of the Christmas event. What, what, I, what, what I want you to see is, is, that the, is that the Magi had wrong assumptions about Jesus. And I think in some ways we share those wrong assumptions or are sometimes tempted to. Um, you know, they're doing their work. They understand there's a new king coming to be born. They follow his star, and and so they're, they know they're looking for a king. What do they do? Well, when they get to Israel, where do they go? They go to Jerusalem, right? Of course you'd go to Jerusalem. It's the capital city. It's the most important city uh, in Israel. And then once they get into Jerusalem, where do they go? Well, they're looking for a king. You go to the palace, right? Where else would a king be? 
which is you know why Herod got looped in. Um, so they they had very understandable biases about where this king would you know he's a king, so look for him in Jerusalem, look for him in a palace. Uh, this is what's so wonderful about Christmas, right? And I, I, we do something similar, though, I think, about when we think about Jesus. Think of it this way. Where do you generally think Jesus is, is alive and active in answering your prayers? Isn't it primarily where, where you've got happiness and success and security and peace Isn't it where in situations where you don't have money worries or career concerns, where your relationships are solid, where your children are brag worthy, where your body looks and feels 10 years younger than it is? Praying for that. Uh, Where your politicians win, where your freedoms aren't compromised and where there are no viruses making your life inconvenient. Right? It's, it's like when, when things are, are, are going well, we say, oh, God is so good. And you go, yeah, well, what does that mean when things aren't going well? Does that mean God is any less good? No, of course not, right? See, the, 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 the point is that this is not, Jesus isn't limited to, and he's not alive and active in just the things that are good. I mean, Jesus, in, what, we, what we need to remember is that Jesus is in the mess, right? He's right in the middle of the mess. And that's the point. That's uh, the point of how, how God structured his intrusion into our planet was that he put Jesus right in the middle of the mess, right? Poverty. He, you know, state-sponsored terrorism. He becomes a political, almost immediately becomes a political refugee. Um, Jesus was sent into an experience, the worst that the world uh, could throw at him. Uh, And he did it on purpose. He came into this on purpose um, so that he would know what you're experiencing, what you're feeling, and so he could be your sympathetic high priest. But we sometimes forget that. It's just about the good things. I, I, Linda reminded me of time, the first time we went to Israel. Um, one of the things you, well, that's on, typically on the, on the uh, tourist agenda is the garden tomb where it, uh, Jesus m- may have been buried. Uh, there are a couple of competing sites. Uh, and the garden tomb is one of them. The garden tomb is the more attractive of the two. Uh, it's uh, it, it's setting. It's got they have what they think is Golgotha there, uh, where the cross was, and then uh, and then this place where the tomb. They've actually uncovered the tomb, and 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 it's and it's beautiful, and it's uh, uh, it's a garden like setting. And we we went. Our group went, and I went as with the expectation along with others in our group to really use this time uh, and this beautiful place to, to, you know, to have some quiet reflection, to really think deeply about Jesus' life and death and resurrection and all that it means for us and really looking forward to having kind of that, a less frenzied, quiet, reflective time. And then what you realize when you get in this garden is that it is literally, I mean, just there's a chain link fence, right? And just on the other side of the chain link fence is the major bus depot for the city of Jerusalem, right? It's like, it's like Union Station in Los Angeles. And, and there are buses in and out, right? And with the, you know, the beep, beep, beep of the backing up and the hissing of the brakes and the belching of the smoke and the smell and horns and the whole nine yards, taxis. And, and I was getting upset. I mean, this is just ruining my time of reflection. I want to stop and think about, you know, what Jesus did. And then I think, oh, you bonehead. This is what he came into the middle of. 
I mean, if Jesus came today, this is where he'd be, right? Right by the bus depot, right? All the smell and the cars and the noise. And we know he was, at, when he was executed. I mean, the one thing that Golgotha has going for it is that it's right next to a highway, right next to a road. It's a very public spot. Jesus was crucified, not on some isolated hill, uh, but, but next to a road so that he could be seen. Um, it's, you know, Jesus went out like he came in. I mean, right, right into the mess of real life. Where, where real life uh, happens. And um, it's important for us to remember that. Um, and he comes into the mess to people who know that they have messed up. That the mess just isn't external, that it's internal. Right? That I'm not just dealing with tough circumstances, but that I've, I'm dealing with a hard heart. I'm, de- I'm dealing with, with, with a mind that g- goes to places it shouldn't go. Um, you know, uh, we, Jesus comes to people that, in his words, were poor in spirit, right? Which means messed up internally, messed up spiritually. No, they don't measure up. To, to a holy God. No, they're not all that they should be. Uh, that's who Jesus came to, right? He grew up to hang with the poor, the destitute, the traitors, the failures, the prostitutes, the sick, occupying soldiers, tax collectors, condemned criminals, women who were often overlooked and marginalized in his culture and children who were also overlooked and marginalized in his culture. You're right. All the kinds of people that, that the religious establishment avoided or shunned, right? And the thing that all those people had in common was that they were poor in spirit. They'd messed up and they knew it. Jesus didn't come for everybody. If, if, if you don't recognize your need for him, uh, he won't come to you. Uh, so, remember what I said earlier. The point here is not that wise men still seek Jesus. The point is that God still seeks messed up men and women like you and me. Um, and he, who know they're messed up. God is the seeker in this story. Everybody wants to make the wise men the seekers. God is the seeker in the story of the Magi. And Jesus Christ is exhibit A of his search and rescue operation. Right? Jesus has come to search you out and to make you whole. Right? To live for your righteousness. To die to pay the penalty for your sin. To be raised to guarantee your future. So today, if you're a follower of Jesus, Merry Christmas. Right? Do what the Magi did. Worship Him. Right? You found God because He found you in Jesus Christ. Let that truth just ring in your soul and, and let it carry you through these tough times. God is here. God is in control. God is good all the time. Um, If you're not a follower of Jesus, and I know that there are people here who aren't, uh, always at Christmas we have people come. It's a tradition to come. You're dragged here by your families, uh, whatever. Uh, You've been asked by a friend. Uh, You know, we're glad you're here. My, My question for you would be, you know, be on just be honest enough with yourself and ask yourself: Are are you sensing that you need a savior? Right? If if you, if there is, if you think you're good and you know need a savior, there's I have not much to say to you. Nor did Jesus. But do you? But, but I mean, do you? 
if, if, you, if you're looking at your, your life, is it not just about your circumstances? Is, are you seeing the problems internally, right? Do you see you, uh, your guilt and your shame and your regrets? Do you, are you s- s- carrying around a past that you can't break free from? Are you, are you believing that your past has locked you into your present and your future? Would you want to be, is there, a, is there some, if, does this sound good to you? To be fully known, meaning know all the good stuff that you let everybody else see, but to know all the bad stuff that you don't let anybody else see. To be fully known, not only what you do, but what you think, right? And have that person who fully knows you fully love you. I mean, if that is, has any sense of attraction to you at all, this may be the Holy Spirit speaking to you right now. It may be God, the seeker, right? Seeking you out. Uh, find the one who is finding you. Right? And believe in him. Trust your life to him and what you'll find is that to what you are you are fully known fully loved and you will have a peace like you've never known before um, and you'll find joy in the midst of this mess that we call have called 2021 um, and that'll be the best Merry Christmas ever for you Amen Amen, Amen. Let's pray Lord thank you for um Thank you for the good news of Jesus. Thank you for his birth in the circumstances in which he came. And for what we've learned from these magi, these astrologers who came and worshipped you. Um, I pray, Lord, that uh, we would be people who would do that. That whose, whose faith would be a vital link to you rather than a, than a, than a straight arm keeping you at arm's length. Help us not to be self-righteous believers, but humble, um, dependent followers of Jesus, um, loving the unlovable, um, just like you have done, forgiving the unforgivable, just like you have done. And for my friends here, just the people here who who would not call themselves Christians, Lord, I pray that, uh, that you would seek them and find them and you would make known your presence to them and that they would turn and find you, the seeker. Um, pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church Escondido reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.